0: Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today, you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee. So, without further ado, here he is. This morning, um, I want to bring a message from the very passage that Mark has just read. I had actually asked someone to read the text for our message this morning, and it turned out that he he actually read the whole thing. So, we're not going to have him come up. Uh, you've heard the scriptures already this morning. And it, it, it recounts the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. It's in fact what we're observing today. It's called Palm Sunday. And uh, I think I grew up associating Palm Sunday with the the children's pastor handing all of us kids a palm frond. And we had no idea what we were doing, but we stood in a line outside the, the sanctuary, and we just did this. And I, I, had, I was so confused what was going on. I just I remember... That's my lingering memory of Palm Sunday. I I want to make Palm Sunday for us this morning a meaningful and recurring annual tradition, an occasion for us to reflect on where we are in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And the title of the message is simply Beyond the Crowds. And I think it will become clear over the course of the message why I chose that title. So I'm going to click forward through this text. I think in every relationship there comes a point, a a certain moment in that relationship where the participants in the relationship realize we can't keep going on assumptions anymore. We have to sit down at some point and do what? Define the relationship, right? And I think for most guys, that's the conversation they dread. They enjoy when it's just cruising along, everything's fun, it's easy to make assumptions, and all of a sudden, usually I don't know why, it's the, it's the female. In my relationship, it was weird. It was me. I was the one who initiated a DTR, but uh, I'm just that kind of feminine guy. Um, but in most relationships, it's the woman who wants... Because it's, it's costly for a person to keep engaging in a relationship where lots of assumptions are being made... But no one's really sure exactly what this is. And so you have a conversation, a DTR, where what's in here comes out of here, right? Isn't that the whole point of DTRs? I think I know what you're thinking, but I need you to say it. I need to hear it. So what is involved in a DTR? It's who am I to you, right? I mean, this is a big question. Exactly when you look at me, exactly what do you see? Who am I to you? Here's another one. Who are you to me? Do you know how I see you? Where is this going? You can put a ring on this finger or, you know, that kind of thing. Is this just goofing around for you? Am I the flavor of the month or is this something more significant? And tied very closely to that is, what are your intentions towards me? I mean, what are your plans for the future of this relationship? And so I think in every relationship, there comes a point where a DTR is critical for the ongoing thriving survival of that relationship. I think that we all need a periodic DTR with Jesus Christ. In fact, if you're a new Christian, that may be even less important than if you're an old, long time Christian. Because the longer you dwell in a relationship, strangely, the easier it becomes to float on autopilot, to make lots of assumptions about that, because you've logged so many miles on the odometer, you think, well, doesn't my life already stand as a, an argument? for where I am with Christ. It might stand as an argument for where you were with him, but it doesn't necessarily tell you where you are with him today. And I think Palm Sunday is a really powerful and important occasion every year for us to pause in our lives and have that DTR with Jesus Christ, that that sense of reflecting on where our relationship is with him. Like I said, this is the Sunday before Easter. We call it Palm Sunday. And that's because we remember that the week before Jesus was crucified, before the the fateful weekend that defines our whole lives, where he was crucified, he was dead, buried, he rose from the grave, and he he ascended before that fateful week. Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem for the last time. What's important to know was that it would kick off events that would lead to the most defining and intense weekend of his earthly life and ministry. Everything that was on hold that was postponed and hinted at would very quickly begin happening in the week that would follow. And so this entry into Jerusalem was very, very important. Now, Jesus had entered Jerusalem lots of times in the past with his band of followers, but he had always done it very quietly. They just walked in like everybody else to the front gate, and they had done their stuff and then left. But this time, Jesus has a very different plan in mind. And so he arranges a careful public statement in the way that he enters the city. He sends his disciples ahead to a small community on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And he says, When you get there, you're going to find a donkey and her kid um, tied together. And you're going to just walk up and take that donkey and her foal and, and come, her colt and come bring them to me. And I'm going to ride in on that donkey. And the reason he did it was because he was wanting very clearly to proclaim to everyone watching that he identifies himself with the promised king of Israel, the promised future Messiah that Israel had been holding their breath waiting for. The Jews would have remembered the prophecy of, of, of the man named Zechariah, who years and years earlier had predicted that, Jesus, that the Messiah would enter Jerusalem like a triumphant king riding on a donkey. And because Jesus wanted now to clearly identify himself with that prophecy, he arranges for a donkey to be made available, and that's how he enters in. Zechariah had said rejoice greatly daughter Zion shout daughter Jerusalem see your king comes to you righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey. Up until this point. Jesus had kept his messianic secret claims a secret. He knew that he was the savior of the world. He knew that he was the king that for centuries Israel had been waiting for, but he had kept it largely a secret except to his most inner circle of followers. But now, just a week before these great events would happen, he decides this is the time to publicly proclaim what his intentions are, who he really is, and what he had come to do. This was the first time that he very publicly proclaimed and demonstrated that he would identify himself closely with the long-awaited Messiah. And he did it in a way that everybody would notice it. Even the people who were gathered in Jerusalem not as Jews would see this spectacle and realize something is buzzing in the city. Now, you've got to understand that leading up to this time, that among the Jews of Jesus' time, there was a growing, mounting hope that this Messiah would finally come, that somebody would come and deliver Israel from the oppression of the Roman Empire and would finally restore Israel to the glory that they once knew under King David and under King Solomon. They still had memories handed down to them through generations of family storytelling of the days when Israel was feared among the nations, was great, was the favored nation of God, where God's favored status over them was so clearly visible to the rest of the world. And so these people lined up believing that maybe this guy, Jesus, who everyone said has, has miraculous powers, is able to do things no human being can do, who taught in a way that was unlike any of the other teachers who were speaking and teaching publicly in that time. There was so much buzz surrounding Jesus. And now here he comes, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, riding into town with a king's entrance into the city. And so the people line the streets and think, maybe this is it. Maybe this is our guy. It's hard to believe that a a yokel from the backwater towns of Nazareth in the region of Galilee could be the guy. But everything points to the possibility that this could be our man. You have to understand, too, that around this time, pilgrims from all over the region had gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover depending on which scholar and which historian you read, there were at least a quarter of a million people who had made a journey into the city. Some people estimate possibly 10 times that amount. What we know is a massive swelling of the population was going on. There was a, you know, this is what happens when you fill any place with about 10 times the normal number of people. There's just excitement, energy, and a lot of tension in the air. And Jesus chooses that weekend to come in. The people line the streets, and they are just cheering. And look at this traditional picture. I don't know if these traditional pictures, they're, they're great for Sunday school. I don't know if they do justice to that. I think the chaos and the uproar you would have seen when a quarter of a million people are packed into a small town that normally houses like thirty or 40,000 people. And they're lying in the streets cheering. And this is the way you would normally greet a king coming into the city before he marches out for battle. I don't think Jesus was too moved to flattery by this reception, though. He saw the cheers. He saw the people laying down their outer garments so that a dirty donkey could step over their good clothing. He saw them laying down palm fronds in a symbol of worship and reverence to him. And yet he wasn't sold on exactly what this represented because he knew that in just less than a week, many in that same crowd would be shouting for his crucifixion. Those same crowds will be saying in, in just five days, crucify him. I think that's the nature of crowds. Crowds tend to have a different mentality than individuals. Crowds tend to move very quickly in their surging, positively or negatively. And in that moment, the energy of the moment had captured everyone in Jerusalem. In fact, it says in the, in the text, in Matthew 21, that, that the city was shaking. It was wild with excitement over what was happening surrounding this figure, Jesus. And yet, in just a short while, those same people would become his arch enemies and cry out against Jesus for his execution. I think Jesus, over the course of his life, had a very complicated relationship with crowds. Now, I don't think Christian leaders today in America have a very complicated relationship with crowds, there are largely two kinds of leaders, it seems, in America today in the church. Those who have large crowds and those who want large crowds. I mean, let's just face it. That seems to be everything in the Christian leadership literature in America. Is Here's how you manage large crowds or here's how you get a large crowd. I'm not reading much else anymore in the pastoral literature that is coming to me through Amazon.com. Whenever Jesus had crowds, though, He behaved very unpastorally, in my opinion. At least if the way we're pastoring today is any reflection. He handled crowds very differently than our leaders today handle them. Now, there was one particular story that I think foreshadows the way this crowd would turn on him. Jesus, whenever he had crowds, had a very difficult, tense relationship with them. Uh, Do you remember back in John chapter 6 when Jesus had a large crowd who was flocking to him because he was casting out demons and he was healing the sick? Now, I want you to think about how exciting that would be if you lived in an age without modern medicine where just a bout of diarrhea could kill you, and somebody comes into town and you hear this buzz that this guy, when he just walks past you and you touch the edge of his clothes, you're healed of years-long afflictions. Can you imagine the hope that filled people's hearts? And so thousands flocked to him, hoping that somehow this thing they were living with every day, they would finally get some relief. And this Jesus would heal them. Some of us in this room are dealing with afflictions in this weak, earthly shell of a body. And it it defines so much of our lives. It defines how we look at ourselves, how others look at us, how we plan our days, how easily we move about. Whether we smile or frown most of the time. There are some living with chronic pain with various kinds of disabilities, can you imagine how exciting it would be if you heard that somebody who can heal you is coming to town? And so there were all these people gathered, and Jesus saw them, and he ministered until he was exhausted to them. He saw that they were getting hungry, and these people were so desperate for healing, they hadn't even thought to stop at home and pack a picnic. And so he said, look, guys, I know we're doing a lot of ministry, but these people have got to eat. We've got to feed them, or we're just going to get a lot more sick people. And, and so this is what's come to be known now as, as the great story of the feeding of the 5,000. And what Jesus demonstrates that day is he did love the crowds. He had compassion and mercy on them. When he looked at these crowds, he didn't say, look at that disgusting, filthy rabble. I wish they'd leave me alone. He looked at them and his heart broke for them. And so that's the one side of Jesus' relationship with crowds is when he sees the large crowds swelling and surging towards him, his heart is warmed and open because he wants them to know what he's making available to them through his kingdom. But at the same time, he discerned that they weren't just coming to him to see him for who he was. They were coming to him because they needed him to be what they needed him to be. And so Jesus feeds them. But he senses right away that these people are so happy with the healing and with the free lunch that they just want to make him their king by force. It was way before the appointed time. He wasn't ready to come out and be publicly declared the king of anything. And so what does he do? He's got at least 5,000. Some people think there was at least 20,000 because they only counted men in those days. It was a sexist time. And so when they said a crowd of 5,000, they weren't talking about women and children. They were talking about dudes. So it could be as many as 15,000 or 20,000 people gathered there. He has a mega church in a little valley right by the seashore. And what does Jesus do? After all the hubbub dies down, people have eaten all their fill of fish and bread, and they're getting sleepy with food coma, he ditches them. This is the weirdest thing. He goes... I think everybody's not paying attention. And he runs away. He doesn't even tell his own disciples, his own team where he's going. He's like, i got to get out of here. This is not my scene. It is not why I came here, to draw large crowds like this who are chasing me for free food and healing. This isn't my primary purpose for being sent to the earth. And so he flees a scene which, in our eyes, looks so filled with Potential So pregnant with possibility, Jesus runs from it because he sees in that crowd something other than what he intends to achieve among the human race. He slips away into the mountains and he wants solitude time. He's running from all this. And then in the morning, um, his disciples, they are go, like, oh, the star is gone. Where's Jesus? And they can't see him. They're like, well, nobody wants to see us. So they get in their boats and they go, let's just cross to the other side and maybe we'll find Jesus or he'll catch up to us. And if you read the Gospels, you remember it's in that crossing that they see Jesus walking on the water. and Like, is that Jesus walking on the water? And it's amazing. He gets in the boat, and he crosses over with them. And now, effectively, Jesus and his whole team have ditched a massive crowd of people who are hungry to see him. That's a little weird, don't you think? Thousands gathered for Jesus, and he runs away. He gets to the other side of the, of the sea. It's called the Sea of Galilee, also alternatively called the Lake of Tiberias. And he gets there and he's just hanging out, but the people on the other side are so desperate for him, they go, Where is Jesus? And they realize he's no longer here, so they get in their boats and they cross the sea and they find him on the other side. Now, I want you to think about this. If I ditched a large crowd of people who were there to hear me speak or do whatever, and I ran away and I was hiding in some Starbucks in some remote town, and all of a sudden someone's like, why are there like 10,000 people outside shouting for you? I got to admit to you, I'd be like, dang, man. I got it like that. You know, Like I, I run away. I ditch these people. They're not put off by it. They will find me. They will hunt me down. They will shout for me because I am so popular. I think it would have flattered me a little bit. I'd be like, all right, guys, I was testing you, but man, you really love me. I'll come out, do a little more. Just a healing here, a sermon here. I do something because that's amazing to see a large crowd of thousands so intent on finding you. They will go through all. They crossed a sea. Now, think about this. You cross the sea. You don't know he's over. He could be in the mountain next door. But they're crossing the sea, hoping maybe on the other shore, like a needle in a haystack, they'll find him. And amazingly, they find him, and here's Jesus' response. He's like, guys, thank you. What what commitment. Here's what Jesus says to that crowd. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, surely, I'm sorry, the next verse. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. Far from being flattered by what the crowds were demonstrating, what he said was, you guys keep chasing me, but what you got to understand is you're chasing the wrong guy. You see me as a meal ticket to get the things your heart longs for, the things you know in your heart you are powerless to provide for yourselves. You're chasing me for bread and for the healing of a body that will one day pass away, but you don't realize the fullness of what it is that I'm talking about, what I've come to extend to you. He's saying to them, I am not flattered by your admiration from a distance. You need to know that what I'm asking for, what I'm calling out to you for, is different than what you are drawn to me to get. And I think in part, this is is what is... A little bit challenging for me about the resurgence of social action and compassion work in the Christian church. I am 100% for the church being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. I am 100% for us being no longer so enclosed and callous and ignoring of the plight of the world around us. But I think it's critically important while we serve the needs of the world, we remember that Jesus did not come to bind up physical wounds and feed physical bellies only. He did come to do that. He clearly demonstrated that was part of his agenda. But if that's where your desire for Jesus or where your belief that this is his provision ends, you've missed the boat on who Jesus is. If Jesus is the person who will lead you to the soulmate with whom you will grow old and die... Yes, that's partly what he wants for you, but that's not all that he wants for you. If Jesus is the one who helps you keep your job in a troubled economy, that's part of what he is for you, but that's not all he wants to be in your life. And the point is, I think that times haven't changed all that much. That I think to this day, there are many who follow Jesus, not for who he says he is to them, but for what they need from him. There are still large crowds following Jesus strictly on their own terms and for their own reasons. And the great fear I have is that many who believe they are part of Jesus' crowd will come to realize they missed the boat entirely on who he was. And so Jesus tells them, look, thanks for finding me. But if you don't understand why I'm here, I'm going to ditch you again. And he launches into one of the most provocative and difficult sermons for them to hear. It's one of those sermons where he set up every sacred cow for the Jews, and he took a sledgehammer and went, bam! He said, look, I know you're going to want to come to me, but you need to know what it is I'm here to do. And he challenges them to listen. And at the end of that long teaching, here's what happens. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. I think that accurately describes the relationship that many people today have with Jesus. Think about most relationships, how they start. Aren't they just so full of optimism and possibility? You meet someone who, you know, like out of all the sea of faces, there's somebody looking at you and they're looking across the room, like making googly eyes. And you're like, Oh, me? Not her, not her. Me? And you're so flattered by the attention. You're thinking, this could be the one. And the guy doesn't seem like a total creep. He hasn't killed anybody and his breath isn't so bad. You're like, maybe. And in the beginning of every relationship, there's this feeling of like the, the hope of mutual benefit the hope that it will last longer than a week, that maybe everything you long for this person will be. And so in the beginning of a relationship, there's lots of optimism, lots of hope, lots of generosity of spirit, isn't there? The person lets out a little fart in the car, you're like, oh, that's probably a one-time occurrence. He's not going to do that all the time in front of me, is he? And in the beginning, there's just so much wishing that it's going to be awesome. That's why some people get married even when the alarms sound. Because in the beginning, it's like, I believe, I just believe it's going to get better. And many times it really does. But if you haven't really counted the cost of relationship, if you haven't really taken a sober look at what the other person is asking from you is going to cost you, you know exactly how that relationship is going to go. You're going to be... It's going to be great, great, great. And then first challenge, brick wall, and then right down. That's the way so many relationships go. And I think that exactly parallels the relationship people in the church have with Jesus so much of the time. I love this Jesus. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to throw out all my secular cds i'm going to take down those posters i'm going to trade in my car and get a real junker and i'm going to give all my money to this guy going to the congo for missions and i'm going to read my bible every day and we start that way but after all we start to realize jesus doesn't just want us to be religious he doesn't just want us to clean up our bad habits he wants to define our whole lives. He wants us to actually belong to him. And after a while, you realize, that's freaking me out. I was looking for a boyfriend. This guy's going to get married. And you feel that familiar claustrophobia of like, I don't know if I want this. He wants to control everything. And I just wanted to kind of come to him and, and hang with him, chill with him, high-five him once in a while. I scratch his back, he scratches mine. That's what I entered this whole thing for. But now he's talking this oppressive language of lordship servanthood, sacrifice, calling, commissioning. It's too much. I need my space. Now, I know some of us in this room, we're wired in such a way that even just hearing words like that makes you feel a little bit like you got to loosen your collar. Commitment, long-term engagement, submission, all those things make us feel completely closed in. I'll bet you when you discern that that's what Jesus wants in your life, you're going to start looking for the exit door. Pastor Kyle Eidelman wrote a book that I've been reading lately. It's an it's, it's a okay book, but it's a very, very okay, more than okay idea. He draws a distinction between fans and followers. Let me tell you the, quickly the story of how he came. He, he's a teaching pastor at the fourth largest church in America, okay? He was sitting in an empty auditorium thinking about what he's going to preach for that upcoming Easter service one year. And he's looking around at this massive stadium. It's, it's a stadium. okay? And he realized that weekend, 40,000 people were going to pass through that building to listen to him talk. And he thought, what exactly am I going to say to all these people? And then he had this epiphany why don't I look at the Pew Bible, or I mean the pulpit Bible, that's, you know, they have these in the South, he, he pastors in the South, they have these massive Bibles, usually King James, that are decorative and, and full of color illustrations. They sit right on the pulpit. No one ever actually uses it, but it's just there for a decoration. And so he looked at it and said, I wonder what Jesus talked about whenever he had a large crowd. Jesus at times was a mega church pastor, so he's like, what, what did he preach on when he had thousands in the audience? And as he started looking over it, He got freaked out a little bit because what he realized is every time Jesus had large crowds, he tried to shrink them. He talked about he was long on commitment, short on benefit. He did talk about what you'd get from him, but he talked a lot more about what he would get from you. From what he was asking of us, what he would be in our lives, the authority and guidance he would give us if we were to submit to him. That's not to say that's all it was about. But what he realized is Jesus never, ever pulled a punch when he had a large crowd gathered. In fact, he actually put brass knuckles on under the gloves. He wanted to hit the crowds harder than anyone else because he sensed that there was a danger inherently built into large crowds of low-level optimism coupled with the complete ignorance of what's really happening here. It's possible, Jesus realized to be very enthusiastic about him and have no clue who he is. And that's what Kyle Eidelman says in this book. He describes a fan as an enthusiastic admirer. Guys like this, do you know it's freezing during this game? And, And this rocket scientist has no shirt on. The only thing he's wearing is orange paint. I don't know if he believes that Brian Urlacher, let's not even talk about him anymore, some other actual bear is on the field about to make a play, and he looks up and goes, there's a shirtless dude in orange paint. i got to play harder. I don't know if that's what he's thinking, but I don't even think it's about the team. I think it's about it. he's just so in love with the idea of the Chicago Bears. It doesn't bother him that the Bears have no idea who he is, that if he didn't give him a couple hundred bucks, they wouldn't even let him in their house. It it makes no difference to him how completely far away he really is from the Bears. It's all about his personal enthusiasm and admiration for the Bears from a great distance. It's unlikely that this guy has ever had supper or coffee with any member of the roster. But it never dampens the enthusiasm he has about this team. That's what a fan is. It's somebody whose admiration is very enthusiastic. In fact, they will even pay a little cost to demonstrate how committed and enthusiastic they feel towards them. But you know, I also know a little something about being a fan. I've been thinking a lot about what kind of Bulls fan I am lately. I think I'm a terrible person because I'm the kind of fan that when the team's playing well, I'm so excited. When they're playing poorly, I'm like, I don't know about these guys anymore. Now, I'm not anywhere near as venomous as my wife, okay, about the the Bulls when they're not playing well, you know. But, But I will say this. A fan is somebody who cheers you to a point. A fan is somebody whose admiration of you is enthusiastic until you stop doing what they want you to do. And then it cools very quickly. That's what I'm learning about my heart as a Bulls fan. I badmouthed Carlos Boozer from this pulpit a few weeks ago, and then I cheered him with high fives to my son when I saw him do a putback dunk. I thought, what kind of hypocrite am I really? What, 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 what kind of human being am I? Is this really what my heart is like? Is if, if you're doing well, I'm with you. If you're doing poorly, I don't even know who you are. Someone said to me after that sermon, well, I don't think Carlos Boozer is ever going to visit our church. (laughs) You're probably right. (laughs) I hope he doesn't because I think I would offend him. A fan will cheer you to a point. And that's really what defines a fan is there's a limit to how far they'll go, how much they'll pay to stay connected to you. As Jesus watches the small army of disciples filing out the door going, all right, you pushed us a little too far. We were with you until that last sermon, but what are you talking about, you crazy person? And they're all walking out the door and Jesus turns to his inner circle of 12 and he says, this is such a human thing. He goes, you don't want to leave too, do you? That, I think that's exactly what I'd want to say. I, I turn to our elders and go, you guys going to go too? I mean, you want to go to? And you know what they they said to him? Peter, of course, always the first to open his mouth. He goes, where are we going to go? I mean, who else has the words of eternal life like you do? And what, what he's saying is we're all in. We don't fully understand everything either, but really we know at least this much. Where else are we going to go? You're the only one we've got. We're with you. And in that one little statement, Peter, who normally opens his mouth only to put his foot in it, Ashley says something profound and powerfully true. He says, we're not fans like the crowd. We're actually with you. We are your followers. A fan will stop following when the teaching begins messing with their lifestyle choices. When what the, the teacher is saying runs afoul of how we want to arrange our lives. Our love life, our living arrangements, our sleeping arrangements, our consumption habits. As soon as the teaching runs counter to how we want to live, a fan's heart will start shaking and going, I don't know about this anymore. Maybe I need to find a different outpost where they don't get in my face about this so much. A fan will keep giving until you ask for more than they were planning to give and suddenly a fan will look for something else. A fan will wait on you, believe in you, until you, ex- you pass their expiration date, and they say, I've been waiting a little too long for this to happen in my life. I can't wait anymore. I'm done. Do you see the heart of a fan? You want to know the difference between a fan and a follower? Here's how you see it. Go to the United Center and watch a game where the Bulls are down by 20 points and there's five minutes left. The fans are getting a head start to the parking lot, The followers are still sitting there going, it could happen. Just wait. You never know. They're stupid. They're completely off the rockers in terms of logic. But a follower goes, even if they lose, where are we going to go? This is our team. We stay to the end. We watch them finish and lose, but we don't go early to the car. The difference between a fan and a follower is that for a follower... There is no expiration date, no limit on how far I will go before I bail and look for something better. The follower is far more dedicated to who they're following than a fan will ever be. And I'm driving this because I think it is critically important. I'm not sure what seeds are going to do, but I'm almost done here, guys. I think it's critically important we get this right. Because I think a lot of people have a very different view of their relationship with Christ than Christ would have. Here's another way of putting it. We often ask the question, who is Jesus to you? As if that's the earth-shattering, decisive question of the universe. Who do you decide that Jesus is? But you know what is perhaps an even more frightening and important question is, who are you to Jesus? Who are you to Jesus? It's okay that you've made up your mind how you want to categorize and file away Jesus in your life. You know where you put him, which shelf, which drawer. That's fine and good. That's an important question to answer. But perhaps the more urgent question for most of us is this, who are you to Jesus? When he looks out at the sea of faces, and all of those individual faces are nothing more than little pixels on a bigger image, and he looks at you, will it resolve into a picture he recognizes? Will he know your face? Will he look at you and say, that's not another one of the static, the faces in a crowd. He's not a fan. I know this guy. I know her. We have a relationship. We, we have history. We have a future. When we were down 85 to 60, they stayed. They finished watching the game, and then they waited in line to get my loser autograph after we lost the game. That's who they are. I know this one. It's not one of the fans looking to beat the traffic out of the parking lot. And the question I think we need to wrestle through today and this week as we look forward to Easter is not just who have I declared Jesus to be? Who have I in my sovereignty pronounced him to be in my life? Yes, answer that. But please, this week, wrestle with this question. Who do you think Jesus says you are to him? Will he recognize your voice? Will he know your smell? Can he finish your sentences? Well, he's omniscient, yes, he can do that. But who are you to Jesus? That question has been messing with me personally this whole week. Because I'm so tempted to answer this. I, what do you mean, I work for him. I'm on the payroll. I'm staff. Move on. Find somebody else to ask that question of. I know who I, I know what I do, I know what my job description tells me. But every day I think it's okay for me to sit and say, "Really, where am I with Jesus?" And would he agree with my assessment of our relationship? It, it, it's, it's kind of humorous, but also kind of tragic that I've had times where I'm counseling a couple, and one person in that couple in that relationship is going, "I'm out of here," and the other one's going, "Everything's going so awesome, I might propose." And I'm like. What do I do with this? I've got to figure out some way to prevent this car crash from happening. One person is convinced it's going to lead to matrimony, the other's desperate for an exit. And like something very bad's going to happen. But the other part of it I see is it's possible to be right in the middle of a relationship and be totally clueless as to what's going on in it. And that's because a relationship is not defined only by one side, but by both sides. You may be very comfortable with where you've put Jesus in your life. But is he comfortable with where he is in yours? Is he happy with the relationship you have? I'll just borrow Kyle Idleman's words and ask you, are you a fan or are you a follower? If you're in a community group this year during the community group retreat, you're going to have a chance to watch a really great video series and explore that question as a group in much deeper level. I think it's a question worth wrestling through in each of our lives. And I think the answer to that question has tremendous importance. And I'll leave you with a verse I've shared with you so many times, but I hope that this verse, I've almost thought maybe if I ever got, we, I had some guests over for lunch yesterday. We're asking each other, if you had a tattoo, what would it be? I almost think this verse might be the verse just as a reminder to me of how important it is to be sober-minded about our relationship with Jesus. In Matthew 7, verses 22 to 23, he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me. Now, I'm not insecure that that's going to be said of me all the time. But there are days when if I'm honest about where I am spiritually, I wrestle through that and I say, I know where Jesus is in my life. But am I just hanging out with him or am I pursuing him? Am I following him? Am I chasing him for the reasons he wants me to chase him? Or am I chasing him because I need him to be what I want him to be in my life? I had come to a point in my own life where I had to just confess, I've been using God like a lucky rabbit's foot for years. Like a, you know, I used to actually say this with a straight face. I would win a tennis match, and I would go, oh, it's a good thing I had quiet time this morning. That's why I won. I wish I was kidding, but I was fully convinced that the reason I beat some other teenager in tennis... It was because I read my Bible in the morning and God was happy with me. Please don't be deluded about the truth of your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the most important relationship in your life. And if you don't know the truth about it, the cost will be immeasurable, and the regret will be severe and probably the greatest clarity to come to us at a time when it's too late to do anything differently. And so I'm inviting you now to pause and really reflect on that question. What exactly is this relationship that I have with Jesus Christ? I know who he is to me, but I also need to know who am I to him? Am I a fan, a face in the crowd, or am I really one of his Do I know what he's inviting me into? Have I received it by the terms he's described? Am I with him? I want to encourage you not to explore that question alone. I want to encourage you to find someone you love and and you trust and explore that question through a conversation. I think it will be one of the most important conversations you have. And if you are in a relationship, dating or married... I want to encourage you to have that conversation with a person who is your significant other. And if it turns out that some changes need to be made in the relationship, to commit to those changes together. I think it will be one of the most important talks you'll have this year. Why don't we just pause and uh, let bow our heads together. I think it's horrible that people in Jerusalem could have cheered Jesus one day and five days later shouted with great zeal for him to be put to death. I think that's awful. I'm tempted to wonder out loud what kind of people do that, but I think I know the answer. I think I can be that kind of person if I don't reflect regularly on where I am with him. The invitation of Jesus to each of us today is not to like him or be positive about him or be enthusiastic towards him. The invitation of Jesus is to follow him. It's to follow him. That's the invitation, then, that is extended to you this morning. Why don't we just take a moment and pray and respond to that invitation in our own way. I believe that some of us, you know who you are. I may not, but you, you know who you are. You're going through something in your life right now that is bigger than the faith that you have. It's as if forces far greater than you are messing with your life, disrupting everything, pushing you to the edge. And the question probably most often on your lips during this trial is why? Sometimes God in his mercy allows us to pass through great trial to shed light on the true nature of our faith and our relationship with him. To tell us that the faith we run on most days is not enough. That we live with him on fueled by assumptions rather than by a daily renewed choice. So if you're going through that right now, I want to ask you if you would just pray a simple prayer of faith. God, would you use my present trial to grow and refine my faith? I want my relationship with you to grow to where we can bear this together. It's a simple prayer of faith. It's not what you feel right now, but it's what God wants to invite you into, I believe. So why don't we just take a moment if that's where you are. And just pray for that. Lord Jesus, we uh, are so grateful for the yearly recurring thing we call Passion Week. This last week of your earthly life and ministry where we reflect and anticipate. And God, many of us have given up something for Lent and our minds are wrapped up around what we've given up. But I pray that, God, you would fill our hearts now with what we gain in you. God, this year, let this Passion Week be that moment in our lives when you spark our faith in our relationship with you in a whole new way. That for those who have coasted on the periphery of a relationship with you, would experience something powerful and new in their hearts. They would hear your heart's calling to them. They would feel that pull deep down and no longer be able to resist. And they would open up their lives to you. Surrender to you. I know you will catch us when we let go. And I pray, God, that this year during Passion Week, many in our church family would experience revival that endures and that our hearts for you would be on fire in a fresh way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church